My guest, David Sanger, is national security correspondent for the New York Times. He has been a member of three Pulitzer Prize winning reporter teams. He's the author of two previous books, including Confront and Conceal, about the joint U.S.-Israeli cyber attack on Iran's nuclear program. And he's also the grandson of Elliot Sanger, who founded WQXR, the first FM station in New York City, um, and still the most listened to classical music station in America. In country, so yeah. thank you for that. His new book is The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And it tells the story of how cyber weapons are changing just about everything about international relations, including espionage, commerce, and war. And you know that neat little thumb drive that you uh, got for free at the trade show? He's also going to tell us why you might not want to put that in your laptop. I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. David, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Andrew. And thank you for having us here at the New York Times uh, Bureau mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. Welcome to our, our humble abode a few blocks from the White House. Right. So you've titled the book The Perfect Weapon, not the uh, ultimate weapon, not the final weapon, but the perfect weapon. Why, are, why is cyber the perfect weapon? Cyber is the perfect weapon for several reasons. First of all, it's dirt cheap. And so it's the great leveler for those countries that can't afford to go up against their adversaries in a big confrontational, traditional military way. Secondly, unlike nuclear weapons, biological weapons, you can dial them up, you can dial them down, you can adjust them so that you're trying to calibrate the weapon to avoid having a military response from your adversary. Thirdly, it's got huge range. Think of the cyber attacks that we have been dealing with in just the past four or five years, sophisticated cyber attacks. There was, of course, the American and Israeli cyber attack on Iran's nuclear uh, centrifuges, which was part of, of Confront and Conceal, which is a book really about Obama's um, foreign policy. Um, but we have seen the election hack, a much more subtle use of cyber. We've seen the United States go after North Korea's missile control system in an effort to keep them from getting intercontinental mis missiles that could reach the United States. We have seen uh, China use cyber to uh, not only suppress dissent, but to gather a vast amount of data from the Office of Personnel Management, 22 million uh, security files on everybody who's had uh, security clearances. This is far more than just your social security number and your birth date. Uh, and then use big data around those. You've seen the Iranians use it against banks, against a casino in um, Las Vegas that they wanted to melt down because they didn't like some things that its owner Sheldon Adelson had said. Uh, you've seen the North Koreans use cyber to go after Sony and melt down their computer systems, to go after the Central Bank of Bangladesh, among others, to uh, go after um, all kinds of other targets in South Korea. So it's a very malleable weapon. So um, the military talks about sort of domains of warfare, uh, land, sea, airspace, and now cyber is considered a domain as well. Um, 
So how is it different from that point of view? In other words, I understand people are doing all sorts of cyber espionage and there's all sorts of levels of things that you can do in cyber, but when you come to sort of viewing it through a military lens, right. how do you differentiate, and this is a long, longer conversation, so you yeah. don't have to give it all in one answer, but how do you differentiate sort of strategy in cyberspace compared to strategy in other domains? Well, I'm not sure you do, and I'm not sure it's actually a wise thing to consider cyber a completely separate domain because it makes people think that we'll be conducting cyber wars over here and regular traditional wars over here. Right, right. And that's not the way the world works. You know, just as people thought we would be having separate air wars when the airplane came into effect, and now we think of air, air power as integrated with every other force that we have, ground, naval, space, you name it. Um, at the same time, there are discrete low-level cyber conflicts that are going on every day. And that also is what makes it such an unusual weapon. Yes, yeah, so isn't that part of the difference is that it's not just, I mean, it, it, all, all weaponry, I guess, exists on some sort of continuum. Um, but cyber, we are in a cyber conflict every day. Right, not We're a cyber war, but a cyber right, conflict. Right. And so it's the ultimate short of war weapon. So if you are out to try to undercut your adversary, you're out to try to diminish confidence in their institutions, if you want to make them think their missiles won't launch or their centrifuges won't spin, if you're trying to shake them but not get into an open conflict. Or convince them that their election process might, might be compromised. That's right. That is the kind of thing that you would use cyber for. And so there are certainly war scenarios for it, and the book goes into a, a classified one called Nitro Zeus, which was the American plan to basically unplug all of Iran if we got into a conflict with Iran so that you could emerge from it without having fired a shot. And we, never, we won't know whether it would uh, ever have been of use, and it was short-circuited by the 2015 nuclear agreement, the one that President Trump has since walked away from. But it gives you a sense of how cyber was already getting integrated into a larger American war plan, and this was three or four years ago. So cyber, in some sense, could be a prelude to a conflict. In other words, your first step might be to disable their power systems, that sort of thing, whatever. Uh, or, it, in essence, can be a substitute for that. That's um, right. It could be a prelude, a substitute, or the beginning and the end. Right. Because if you can stop a country from communicating with its military forces, you might have finished off the war as it started. Before it even starts. Um, so when I started to think about cyber and look at it, my mind immediately went to sort of the lexicon of nuclear weapons and all the concepts that, that around there, including things like deterrence and mutual assured destruction and even arms control. These are all sort of things that were sort of, uh, um, are sort of constructs, I think, that are in the military mind and certainly in military strategists' mind. And is there a danger that people have sort of looked at those, uh, those constructs, used those sort of mental maps, and tried to apply them to cyber? Because it seems to me the more I got into it, the less parallels there were on sort of every level. That's right. All the questions that come up in nuclear deterrence are the same as the questions that come up in cyber. Mm. And every one of the answers is different. And following the analogy too slavishly 
can really send you down some wrong rabbit holes. You know, I was trained by, among others, the great Ernie May, who was a sure. professor at, at, at Harvard, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Thinking in Time about the uses and misuses of, of, uh, of historical analogy. And as I was working on this book, one of the things I was trying to figure out was where do the nuclear analogies apply and where don't they? So let me give you one where they apply, and then we can go into where they don't. The one where it applies is that this is a technology that is more than just another weapon. It is because it is so cheap, because it is so available, because it is now spread to 30 or 40 countries, it is actually changing the balance of power in the world today. And people forget that when they are reading these headlines about stolen healthcare data or stolen OPM data or a steel mill that got wiped out. They're forgetting that, yeah, we're the collateral damage, but in a much broader strategic war that's going on at 30,000 feet above our heads. And then the question is, how does this actually change that balance of power? Well, in the nuclear world, it took us decades to figure that out. And Henry Kissinger didn't write nuclear weapons uh, and foreign policy um, until 12 years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And then there was another 15 or 20 years of debating how we wanted to use nuclear weapons. And in the 50s, we were talking about using it against the North Koreans, the Chinese, and the Korean War. By the 1980s, we had concluded we would only use a nuclear weapon as a matter of national survival. Complete 180-degree turn. In cyber, we're just beginning to have that debate. So nuclear is a useful tool to remind us that even in the most classified of weapons, you can still have a very public debate about how you want to use it. And we haven't even made that leap. Now, where is it misleading? It's misleading because the weapon is not just available to states. It's available to terror groups, criminal groups, teenagers. So the whole idea that you're going to sign the arms control treaties, forget it not going to happen. You might get some norms of behavior. You're not going to get the kind of treaties that we saw in the, in the nuclear age. There's also a great uh, 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 phrase which I had not heard before, which you use in your book, which I, I guess is in common parlance among uh, people in the know about cyber, but it's left of launch. Yep. The idea that you would have a preemptive strike on an opponent's weaponry using what they call non-kinetic means. Now, this is a, an important distinction, I think, for our, for our uh, audience, which is that we always draw a distinction between kinetic warfare, which is when you actually blow things up uh, physical, in the physical world, and everything else. And so cyber is considered a non-kinetic means of... Although you can use cyber to begin to blow some things up. Right. Ask the Iranians. They yes. learned this lesson the hard way. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, there's a, there, again, there's, that's why it's also new. There is a point at which you're using cyber, you can cause bad things to happen in the physical world, right? right. Um, but so this left of launch idea, explain to us what that is sure. and why that's important. If you think of the traditional missile defense, it's a missile gets launched, we try to intercept it, it may blow up, it may not, but after it's launched, you're dependent completely on your statistical chances of intercepting it. In, in space. Left of launch is an effort to try to increase your chances by sabotaging the missile before it leaves the launch pad or in the first seconds after it does. And it can be everything from 
moving in bad parts into their supply chain so that they will fail, to moving in bad software, to getting inside the command and control system so that when it does launch, it gets a series of signals that makes it go awry, blows it up, and so forth. We started getting into it when uh, Bill Broad and I noticed that the Musadon missile, which was an intermediate range missile that the North Koreans were uh, firing with uh, significant rapidity back in 2015, 2016, mostly in 2016, um, was having a failure rate of 88% for what was a fairly mature missile program. That's a very high failure rate for something that's sort of a well-understood missile. Lots of people blow stuff up, right. including us, early in their programs. Right. But eventually they work out the kinks. So we looked at this and we said, there's got to be a better explanation. Now, we can't tell what percentage of those failed launches was due to the cyber element of this and what was due to bad parts and what was due to the North Koreans just making mistakes. But it's clear it had some effect. But these are preemptive strikes. In, in Absolutely. Military, or, or preventive strikes. They, they, you know, right. Slight distinction there. But, but um, they, I suppose if you made an argument, well, if it were something that as the missile were being moved into position and you knew they were going to use it, that's a preventive strike. And, but if it's, it's really a, a, a change in, 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 in doctrine, and it's not, it's not within... Uh, international law in terms of... No, it is, it, is, it is well out of that because you <laughs> yes. are striking first. Now, right. there is a doctrine of preemption right. if we, you believe we, and, you are... And it's important to point out that the U.S. has never said they wouldn't strike preemptively. That's right. We, have not had, we don't have these, a no-first-strike policy, but this is This was against... Important. These were also against test flights. Mm -hmm. They weren't... It would be one right. thing if you thought they were loading up a nuclear a weapon... Point, right aimed at California and then, you know, there, you, would, you would be on pretty firm international legal ground about taking it out before it launched. You probably also wouldn't trust that to a cyber strike. You probably would right. just go blow it up the old-fashioned way because your risk was so high. But this takes us into a new territory, partly because of the legal issues that you raise, which we could do separate discussion and broadcast on, but partly because of the precedent that it sets. So we don't think the North Koreans can do a whole lot to our nuclear systems. But supposing we have established in the minds of the Russians and the Chinese that using cyber against another country's uh, nuclear command and control is fair game. Now, they may have thought that anyway. Right. But you're certainly reinforcing it once you've done that program against the North Koreans. And there are a lot of vulnerabilities to our old, own systems. I mean, the main thing that saved our our nuclear system so far is that the computing is so old in the command and control system right. that we're actually relatively safe. But as we modernize those systems, we're going to end up putting in software that's got significant vulnerabilities because all new software has significant vulnerabilities. Right. So interesting question, do you want to go down this road knowing that one day it could be turned against you? And there's a strategic stability question here. If you're doubtful that when you press that big red button that the president says he has on his desk, just like Kim Jong-un, right, and nothing happens, would that make you more tempted to press it early mm -hmm. so that you could use a backup system if nothing happened? And so there's a question of whether or not it could make you a little bit trigger happy. 
So this sort of raises the, the, the question why I think the strategy, the fact that there isn't sort of a big debate about strategies is kind of important. I talked in another program in this series with Christian Lifflander from sure. NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, and Christian is a very interesting guy. He's a uh, Estonian, mm -hmm. uh, and he is uh, a graduate of, uh, of uh, West Point, mm -hmm. and his master's from Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there, we're at the Hudson Institute, which of course was founded by Herman Kahn, right. great military uh, or nuclear right. strategist. I had to go read all those books when I was an undergrad, right. Right? Think thinking about the unthinkable. Right. Yeah. And I asked him, I said, where is that debate happening right now? Because there was a period in, in the U.S., as you pointed out at the beginning of this interview, when we had sort of this rich debate going on, and it took some time, I understand. Public but debate. everything, it, the other thing is cyber sort of accelerates everything. I mean, I don't think we have 10 or 12 years to think about Certainly how this... Not. We, and we I'm not even sure we have a year. Oh, a year <laughs> okay. right. So why, is this debate happening and we just don't hear about it, or is it not happening? And if it's not happening, why? Well, certainly the public debate isn't happening. There's, you know, I go to a lot of academic conferences course, where it's sure. debated. There is a lot of discussion of it within, you know, behind the wall of classification in the U.S. military. But that's not necessarily where you want this debate to happen because that means that the people doing the debating are the people who are invested in the successes of these systems. They've devoted their lives to developing these weapons. They want to make the, the broadest use of them. So why isn't this debate happening? The main reason is that cyber is one of the first weapons that was fully developed by the intelligence community. And you may have noticed the intelligence community is pretty secretive generally. And there is this sort of reflexive view that if you debate anything about cyber in public, you are revealing key capabilities to your adversaries. Right. Okay. Now, my answer to that is, if you go back to the cyber analogy, we, that, I'm sorry, back to the nuclear analogy, we kept everything about how you build nuclear weapons, how you assemble the components, who's got launch authority in a classified realm, and we had a very rich public debate, as you suggested, about when and where we want to go use these weapons. No one wants to have that in the intelligence community about cyber. Why not? Well, if you and I sat down to make a list of things that we thought might be off limits if you um, did sort of a, a digital Geneva Convention, you know, probably on the list would be election systems. Okay, let's take those off. Um, hospitals. Hospitals. And the electrical grid that feeds into the hospitals. And then the question is, does that mean you have to take off all electrical grids in total, right? Backup systems for it. Communication systems for emergency workers. And we could, you know, with a beer or two, we could probably put together a list of 10 or 12 that sure. we could come to agreement on. Now let's say you took that list and you brought it over to the NSA or the CIA or others. What would they say? Well, election systems. You know, I can understand after, after what the Russians did, why I wouldn't undo this, but remember, we did stuff in Italy in the 40s, in Latin America right. in the 50s and 60s, we ran a coup in Iran. Do we really want to take that one off the table? Electrical grid. Yeah, I can understand why you don't want to hit hospitals, but if we're really going to make a country surrender before we have to make use of real force, there's no better way to get their attention than to turn out the lights and everything around it. Do we really want to take that off the table? So there would be a big debate that I suspect there are many in the U.S. government who would rather not have in public. You know, we're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back 
I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents, combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat, to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission-critical systems to deliver trusted, innovative solutions that secure our way of life and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place. Because when everything is connected, security is everything. David Sanger. Um, my colleague and I, uh, Carl Cannon, talked to Michael Hayden uh, mm -hmm. as part of the series a few weeks ago. Fascinating guy, yep. former head of the CIA, and, uh, someone who, who figures somewhat prominently in your book. That's right. Um, and one of the things that he said is that uh, uh, that we, his experience when he was in the Air Force, um, was that we were doing cyber strategy, and the Russians were doing sort of communication strategy. Information warfare. Information warfare. Um, Tell me about that. Is that true? Absolutely. He's, he's, and why is that important? Mike's, got it, it Mike's got it absolutely right. So information warfare precedes the invention of the internet, computer, right. so forth, okay? Goes and back by to the ancient way, I, I should say, and I said this to Michael Hayden and he kind of shot me down, but we're pretty good at information warfare. That's part of what, the, I mean, when we, we think of, of... We once were. <laughs> well, yes. But when we think of the war of ideas or hearts yeah. and minds, um, we generally have a feeling that our ideas are universal in appeal and that our openness is, is a positive But I'm not thing. sure I would call that information warfare. That mm -hmm. is sort of, you know, the appeal, the soft power of your, to use Joe Nye's phrase, right. of... Uh, the appeal of your society, and we've counted on that. But back in, say, Stalin's days, you know, they would buy off reporters at farm newspapers in the middle of the country and post these false stories and hope that word spread that way. In the cyber world, the only difference is that you can post these stories and this, this false stuff sitting in St. Petersburg at the Internet Research Agency and spread them far more quickly and do a much larger volume of them and have vastly better graphics and not have to worry about how you're going to get it into the farm newspaper because you're putting it on Facebook. Right, right? And the rapidity with which it, it gets, gets repeated, gets amplified. So it's old techniques that get supercharged by going through the modern technology. So... The Russians have always thought of information warfare on the spectrum with cyber. We came to these issues from sort of Mike's old world of signals intelligence, mm -hmm. right? That's what the NSA started as, right? We find secrets, things that are encrypted, we unencrypt them, you give it to policymakers and say, you know, here's what the Russians and the Chinese are really saying to each other in mm -hmm. what they thought was a classified network. Right. That has now moved because so much of the NSA is all about causing cyber effects because we now have the interface of the digital world, the internet world, with the physical world. So you can try to do some things 
defensively about information warfare. There's a big section of the book about how the United States tried and largely failed to stop ISIS's spread of propaganda. Mm -hmm. And they failed because you could take the stuff down, but it turned out it was on five more servers spread out from right. Germany to Canada, and it would just reappear later on, and you weren't really accomplishing very much for more than a day or two. Or you can go to the physical effects side. You can do what the United States and Israel did to those centrifuges, which was change the programming so they sped up and slowed down until they blew apart. Mm -hmm or manipulate that data in the North Korean rocket system. So that has become the sort of new bridge in the physical world. We've never really focused very well as a democracy in doing the information warfare part and the fake news part. And then of course, we've got the additional problem that what began being understood two years ago as Russian propaganda, as fake news, something you made up, is a phrase that got hijacked by President Trump and many of his supporters mm -hmm. to try to, dis to describe the work done by real news organizations that do real reporting, including the one you're sitting in. Yeah, Joe Nye draws this distinction now between soft power and sharp power, which I think is sort of an interesting distinction. Yep. Um, and I buy that. I buy that there's... Um, but still, you would think that one of the things that makes the United States hard to crack from a sharp power point of view is the fact that it's got this large and robust and free uh, media landscape. Yep. And that it's true the Russians can post something on Facebook. I guess this brings me to this question of asymmetry, which is another sort of strategic concept. I mean, one of the asymmetric things, at least uh, in the old day, when it came to information warfare, uh, or propaganda, if you will, was that uh, if we were talking to, uh, trying to reach someone in the Soviet Union with Voice of America, yeah, the Soviet Union with Voice of America, they had the uh, official channels and they had Voice of America and Radio Free. In other words, we were sometimes 50% of the conversation. Now, they jammed us, all that sort of stuff, but still, we were at the table in an information-scarce environment. We live now in an information-rich environment, should we really be that worried, I guess, that the Russians are posting a few Facebook uh, things and they're, they're almost, some of them are laughable almost. I mean, yep. people think they're very effective, but like 99% of the stuff that comes across my Facebook feed uh, or my Twitter feed, it's, it's noise. That's right. So there are different theories on this. Theory number one is, who cares? They'll get washed away in the river of, of data that we've got. And that's the theory under which the Russians may not have had much effect on the 2016 election. Uh, I've heard Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, make the argument recently he thinks it actually did make a big difference in the election. I, I, yes, it's incredible. Uh, I, yes, I have not argument. seen right. the evidence of that, and it's not supported by the intelligence that at least the DNI's office made public when he was still there. Now, maybe his view has changed. Um, Theory number two is we can't have foreigners inside our election system, and that's the theory under which it could make a difference. You'll never be able to measure the degree to which it has. But if there's that risk, and since we wouldn't allow foreigners to go take out political ads that you ran on TV, why should you allow them to do this on the Internet? And my view of this is this was why we actually needed a sort of 9-11-like committee after the 2016 election, a commission that looked at the big lessons learned from the 2016 hacks. 
and not just the DNC hack, but the point I make in the book is that the Russians were inside the White House, the State Department, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in each of those cases, while the U.S. government fought to get them out, it never made public that it was the Russians. Mm -hmm. right. So Putin never paid a price, right. right? And I think that was quite critical because if you're not gonna pay a price for going into even the unclassified part of the White House thing, why would you think you'd pay a price for going into the DNC, which is basically run by a bunch of college kids, right? right. right. Or staffed by them. So um, the theory number two is ban the foreigners. The problem with theory number two is it contributes to the balkanization of the internet that we're already seeing happen. So the Chinese have built a sort of China-only internet. You don't see Google on it. They've got right. Baidu. You don't see Facebook on it. They've got their own equivalent of Facebook so that it lends itself to central control. You're seeing the Russians do pretty much the same thing. So the big question that's coming out of this is, is this world that we envisioned in which the internet was going to be the great unifier, which we were going to spread the ideas of democracy that you said before we were pretty effective at, is it actually going to go the other way? that people have figured out how to so manipulate the internet that you can wall off your population. So oh, I did promise that we would talk about, tell our viewers about thumb drives, which that's, sure. just tell us that story. That's a fascinating story of how thumb drives, sure. little low budget things you stick in the side of your Yeah, you do computer. get them free at right. conferences, right. right. If you get one free at a conference, wait till you get home and put it behind the right rear tire of your car and go over and crush it, okay? Um, so. Early in the book is a description of what happened when the Pentagon first discovered that there were Russians inside one of their classified networks, the CIPRANET, which is later actually uh, what uh, the WikiLeaks documents all came through. They came through CIPRANET in a separate hack. And uh, this was 2008, was the fall. Barack Obama was on his way to the presidency. and. The NSA and the Defense Department discover that the Russians are deep inside these systems, and they try to figure out how. And what they discovered was that in a parking lot at a base in the Middle East, they had littered the place with some of these thumb drives, each of which was infected with a program that was essentially a call-home-to-Moscow beacon. And as people would put these in the thumb drives, they would begin to send everything that was inside the classified network out. Right because the thumb drive was already basically into the circuitry. Later, the Russians got better. We now know of at least one case of an NSA employee who brought unauthorized material home and put it on his computer, and his computer had Kaspersky, a Russian company's um, virus software. Now, antivirus software goes down to the base level of your computer, because it's got to make sure that right. nothing has gotten in. It detected the code names for some key US programs and beam them out. We don't even know if this was with Kaspersky's knowledge, right back to Moscow. Right, right. So the thumb drive, the antivirus program, the things you're doing that you think you're doing to protect yourself, antivirus programs being the great example, can end up creating the vulnerability you're trying to avoid. And the, is it true that the Pentagon ended up putting super glue in the uh, USB ports of those computers to keep you from, I, I from putting them I, in? I discovered this from really high-level sources. You know, in the course of like making my way through military bases, just doing the re ordinary reporting we do here at the New York Times, I would keep running across 
people whose computers were super glued across the thumb drive. And I kept saying, why is that? They said, oh, they made us do that after the, after the big hack in 08. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, you, you end the book on a surprisingly optimistic note. I just want to um, read this back to you. Say, you say, the good news is that because we created the technology, we have a chance of controlling it. If we concentrate on how to manage the risks, it has worked in other realms. It can work in cyberspace as well. Do you really believe that? that I do believe you can manage the risk. I don't believe you can eliminate the risk. Okay. Look, we all drive cars, even though we know that tens of thousands of people get killed in car accidents every year. And we have two choices under that. We can try to make cars safer, or we can give up driving entirely. There's not much discussion about giving up driving entirely. There is a lot of discussion about whether autonomous vehicles are likely to be safer. You know, there are a lot of regulations that now require you to have seat belts and airbags and special crash bumpers. And now, starting next year, backup cameras, okay? Basic safety equipment that we're seeing, each one of which is going to go reduce the chances that we're gonna have fatal accidents. And that's where we are in the internet. We're not turning it back. We're not stripping people of their iPhones and saying, sorry, you're not gonna be able to go check your mail every 20 seconds. It's not gonna happen. So the only question is, can you make your network safer? 85% of that is people doing the things that people do to make their own personal information safer. Two-factor authentication when that code is sent back to your iPhone or onto some authentication thing. Something that assures the world that it's really you who's in the midst of this. That's one way to go about it. The second way to go about this, which is um, a lot more complicated, uh, is how the government itself then goes to protect you against that top 15% of threats that you'll never protect yourself against. And that's part of this debate we haven't had. When are we willing to let the government step in and intervene? If they are willing to intervene, are we willing to have them go do preemptive action as we were discussing before in foreign networks? What happens when that, foreign, when that preemption starts a war? Because the Chinese come in and say, or the Russians come in and say, I know you think that that computer you just melted down was being used by people who were designing malware, but actually it was being used by people who were doing K through three educational software. Right. You know? So, uh, and you're gonna have a hard time proving that your attack was justified. Right. So we're in a new realm that we need to be publicly figuring out mm -hmm. because these are not all acts of war and you want to keep them from tripping into wars. On that happy note, we're the interview. David Sanger is my guest. The book is The Perfect Weapon. I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. Thanks for joining us. There's more information about cybersecurity, including how U.S. military strategy is evolving, on our website. Just go to realcleardefense.com, and you'll get a prompt to go to our cybersecurity homepage.